Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for welcoming me and my family into your beautiful church this morning. And I was just thinking as um, we read through Psalm 19, gosh, if there were ever a morning that, in which the heavens declared the glory of God, um, it's this morning. I was lucky enough to, um, with my daughters, watch the sunrise over Manly Beach this morning. And gosh, what a, what a glorious God it points us to. So what I'm going to do this morning is share my story about how I went from being an atheist to a follower of Jesus Christ. And so, as Bruce mentioned earlier, I'm a historian. So how does a historian who once defined herself as an atheist come to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, my story actually unsettles a number of very popular but misguided assumptions about people who convert from atheism to Christianity, not least because I came to faith at a high point in my life, when far from needing a crutch, as it were, I actually had everything I always wanted. I grew up here in Sydney, not too far from Manly, uh, on the North Shore, in a loving non-Christian home with parents who loved each other and their children dearly. My family took seriously the engagement with truth and ideas. My father was an academic, a scholar of Australian history, and a professor in the government department at the University of Sydney. And so family mealtimes were a forum for family discussions of politics and history and issues of social justice. And the rhythms of university life punctuated my childhood. I loved spending school holidays going into uni with dad. Um, and as I got older, I'd do research for my school projects at the university's Fisher Library. And so to me, that famous Victorian Gothic sandstone quadrangle at the University of Sydney symbolised the world of learning and ideas. To me, the world was a wondrous place, it was a complex place, and the human mind had to grapple with our existence in all its fraught complexity. And my parents always encouraged me to learn and to pursue the truth. When I was eight, my family travelled to England and to America. I got to miss a term of school while my father had a sabbatical appointment. And we spent time, uh, a lot of time in England and time at Darwin College at the University of Cambridge. And that trip was formative for me. I saw the remains of medieval castles, we went through medieval towns and villages that were old enough to be in the doomsday book of William the Conqueror back in 1066. And I think that was the moment that the past captured my imagination. And I remember that just before my ninth birthday, which I had in England, I decided that when I grew up, I wanted to be a historian and I wanted to go and study history at Cambridge. And I think that sense of ambition gave me a very firm sense of who I was and what life was all about. I knew it would take considerable drive to study at Cambridge and win the scholarship that would enable me to get there. And I think in some ways this helped shape the appeal of atheism, which I first began to explore as a teenager, because I believed that I didn't need a God to tell me who I was or how to make sense of the world. I believed I had that strong sense, and so therefore I thought that Christianity was just a crutch and that therefore I didn't need it. My identity lay instead in academic achievement, and I thought of myself as a secular humanist. And so I believed that my 
moral convictions about the world were actually based upon self-evident truths that like every reasonable person believed. As an undergraduate, these dreams that I had since being a young child started to come true. I won that uh, scholarship after the university medal to take me to study for my doctorate at the University of Cambridge. And I was at King's College Fair. Now, King's, despite its name, is actually known for its um, kind of secular radical ideology these days. And so my perception of Christians actually fitted well with the views of my fellow students. I thought Christians are just anti-intellectual and self-righteous. Then towards the end of my studies at Cambridge, I was elected to a junior research fellowship at the University of Oxford. A few months into that fellowship at Oxford, my friends and I learned that one of the most famous contemporary atheist philosophers, Peter Singer, who also happens to be Australian, was visiting Oxford to give a series of lectures called the Your Hero Lectures in Practical Ethics. So Singer is a professor at Princeton University and the lectures that he gave that I went to later became the basis of his very popular book, The Life You Can Save. With logical consistency, Singer pursued the implications of atheism for ethics, even when they lead to uncomfortable positions. In fact, I left Singer's lectures with a profound intellectual vertigo because I was compelled to confront one of my most deeply held beliefs. See, I'd always believed in the innate equality of all people, black or white, able-bodied or disabled, sick or healthy, young or old. And I assumed that this was just something that all reasonable people agreed upon and that that was entirely consistent with atheism. But one of Singer's foundational claims is that actually the innate preciousness and the equal value of human life is actually a Christian myth. Moreover, the sanctity of human life, he says, is a principle that cannot rationally be defended because it depends upon Christian underpinnings. In reality, Singer says, humans are nothing more than a higher form of primate. And this has enormous ethical consequences, right? Because for him, we're not made in, in God's image. We are just a higher form of primate. And so as he explains it, and I'll quote him here, the belief that mere membership in our human species, irrespective of other characteristics, makes a great difference to the wrongness of killing a being is a legacy of a religious doctrine. Indeed, let's consider that, that atheist worldview for a moment. If there is no God who created humanity with purpose and with love, then the ultimate reality of human life is just biological, just a, just a bunch of atoms. And so there's no basis for believing that human lives are inherently precious or valuable. And nor can an atheist hold that every human life is of equal worth. These claims about the inherent and equal value of human beings are actually inconsistent with observations of nature, of the natural world, because Actually, if you just look at the natural world, the bare natural world, well, nature exhibits a cruel hierarchy of humanity's talents and capacities, physical, intellectual, moral, aesthetic, and so forth. Some people possess brilliant intelligence, while others are profoundly intellectual disa intellectually disabled. And some people 
suffer from cancer or other diseases and die very young, while others live to be more than 100. So the biological reality of human life is actually hierarchical, not egalitarian. So for Singer, if you want to just build an atheist system of ethics, then what you have to turn to is that hierarchical, natural, biological picture of human life. You can't turn to any idea that all human beings are somehow inherently valuable and precious and of equal worth. Indeed, as Richard Dawkins puts it so memorably in his book, River Out of Eden, I'll quote Dawkins here, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at no bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. There's nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. If that biological reality is the ultimate reality, which is the case if there's no God, then it's absurd, and it's also actually entirely inconsistent with atheism, to suddenly believe that actually the life of the weakest human being, right, at the bottom of nature's hierarchy, is actually as valuable and as precious as the life of the fittest and the strongest. Now, Singer's not the first philosopher to recognise this. Uh, the 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, um, many of you probably will have heard of or read Nietzsche, um, and I'd read him in my studies, had recognised that if God is dead, that's Nietzsche's famous phrase, if God is dead, then an ethics based upon the idea that all human beings are created by God and in his image and therefore equally precious ought to accompany God to the grave. That's collateral damage, isn't it? Singer's belief that not all human beings are of equal moral worth alarmed me when I came back from those lectures, but I soon began to question, well, why am I alarmed? Because if I'm an atheist, as Singer had explained, this position follows necessarily from an atheist view of human life. So on what basis could I disagree other than simple emotivism? What I mean by that is other than my simple emotions or feelings. But just because I feel that something's wrong doesn't make it wrong. If I believe that there was no God and consequently no objective morality or inherent value to human life, then surely I ought to have the integrity to actually live in accordance to that belief. To invent an ethic of care for the marginalised and the weak would actually be a denial of my atheist naturalism. It would be a kind of slap in the face, both to my atheism but also to my integrity. As I thought this through, I had an awkward sinking feeling. Care for the marginalised, the equality of all human life, these are principles that I cherished, that I loved. But what I was starting to realise is they didn't stem from atheism at all. They were actually Judeo-Christian principles. They were found in the Bible, in the Old and the New Testaments. I later learned that the prophet Isaiah articulated this rather beautifully. Here's what Isaiah says in the Old Testament. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. That's Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. Atheism, it turned out, was actually incompatible with my most cherished moral principles, not least the precious and equal value of human life. My heart sank. Atheism had failed me. 
But atheism was also failing me in another, more personal way. You see, to my mind, because God didn't exist, I was free to create the meaning and significance of my life. I was in my mid-twenties, and that's how I'd been living. I'd been relishing one success after another. I had everything that I thought I always wanted. So the last thing I needed was some kind of crutch belief, or so I thought. The gray Oxford, one gray Oxford winter's day, I found myself alone in my college library, and I noticed that the desk I usually sat at was in front of the theology section. With an awkward reluctance, and curious also about where these ideas about care for the marginalized and love came from, how they came from Christianity, I took a book off the shelves and I opened a book of sermons. To be honest, I was curious, but I actually expected to just read that was something kind of vague and empty, something kind of pious and self-righteous. But actually, the sermons I read were genuinely intellectually robust. They pointed me to a number of biblical verses that presented an entirely different account of human life and human value to the atheist one I'd I'd heard from the Singer lectures. One verse in particular was from Psalm 139, verse 13, which says, so the psalmist is speaking to God, it was you who formed my internal organs, fashioning me within my mother's womb. And there was another verse in Genesis chapter 1 that I'd heard before but never properly thought about that said, let us create mankind in our image, so this is God speaking, after our likeness, so creating people in his image. But the most arresting verse actually came from the New Testament, Paul's letter to Galatians. I'd never actually come across this before, but he was speaking here about human value and said, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's Galatians 3.28. There was a stark contrast between atheism and these glimpses of a biblical view of human life, those who are weak and those who are strong, able-bodied and disabled, black and white, male and female. The Bible was telling me that God created all these people in his image. Now, I remembered from my studies of how the abolition of slavery occurred in the British Empire, the phrase that was on all the pamphlet literature at the time encouraging people to support the abolition of slavery. And the image that accompanied this phrase was of a slave with his wrists in shackles. And the phrase was this, am I not a man and a brother? Well, it's, it's biblical. That's a biblical claim. It's a biblical claim that the reason why we must abolish slavery is that slaves are human beings created in God's image. They are brothers, sisters. So if God created all humanity in his image, then all people were equally and infinitely precious. It wasn't long, however, before my mind turned to the historical and the present reality of human life with all its suffering and its brokenness and its despair and exploitation, the superficial frivolity, the endless striving, not least my own, How do I make sense of that? Now, I knew this idea of sin, or at least I thought I did, but to be honest, I was arrogant enough mentally to have rolled my eyes at the idea of sin. Surely sin is just an idea levied by self-righteous moralizers to condemn others, to stop being people like me who they wanted to be. 
Surely in the enlightenment and reason had liberated us from all that. But then if the Bible's doctrine about human life was robust and compelling and obviously part of an entire story, then perhaps I'd been wrong to dismiss sin quite so quickly. Perhaps I hadn't properly understood what sin actually meant and what its role in this whole picture that the Bible was giving me actually was. So I promised myself I'd explore this idea of sin properly and not be so narrow-minded. Soon afterwards, I moved to Tallahassee in Florida to take up an assistant professorship at Florida State University. One of my new friends gave me a copy of a book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity, and I was struck by how reasonable C.S. Lewis's arguments were, and I felt a kind of affinity with Lewis because C.S. Lewis, like me, had actually gone from being an atheist to becoming a Christian. One morning in this new city that I was to call home, I finally decided to walk into church for the first time as somebody earnestly seeking God. I decided to go to church by myself. Now, it was the autumn, the fall, as we called it in America, and that gave slight relief to the intense humidity of Florida, and the air was redolent of gardenia. Now, downtown Tallahassee is a place of commerce and politics. Tallahassee is the capital of Florida, so it's a very worldly city. And the city seemed particularly ordinary that morning, with its plodding pace, its empty streets, its closed buildings. As I walked past the live oak trees draped with Spanish moss, I brushed my fingers against their curly fronds. And then in a moment of reverie, I smiled and remembered my mother calling them grandfather's whiskers back home in Sydney where once they draped from a pot on our front veranda. I glanced at them again more soberly this time. If I were an atheist, they're just matter in motion. Now the church was a stately brick building. Now, few people knew me in Tallahassee, so I felt safely anonymous to walk up the stone steps and through the red-painted door of this church. And suddenly, this somewhat mundane and lonely morning all but disappeared. Inside seemed almost otherworldly. Wooden rafters drew my eyes upward toward the vaulted ceiling. The walls were flanked by stained glass windows, not unlike these with their streams of coloured light above and beside me. And ahead of me stood a wooden altar, draped in green, and above it stood a giant cross. Now that morning, the choir sang a hymn arranged by Ralph Vaughan Williams, which reminded me of England. Their voices were haunting, and I became quite emotional. I got a lump in my throat. That morning, this congregation celebrated the Lord's Supper. Now, I'd never been baptised, and so I was quite content to just sit in the pew and watch everybody else take the Lord's Supper. And the words that were uttered took me out of Tallahassee and they took me out of myself and into a much larger story. Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And then drink this, all of you, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. These words were followed by silence as we all knelt in the pews and bells rung as if to echo those strange and profound words. As the congregation knelt to share the bread and the cup of wine, 
everything was still. It seemed as if that present moment were transcended by this story solemnly reenacted here. The body of God made flesh and broken for his people, blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, and a new covenant. Now, I was a stranger, but in that moment, I realized I was standing on the outside looking into something more sacred and beautiful than I could fathom. One of the issues I'd been grappling with since I began to question my atheism was that if atheism is true, then there's no ultimate meaning. If nothing exists outside of matter in motion, as it were, then nothing is transcendent, nothing sacred. Time and life itself are ultimately purposeless. So the only meaning that we have is that which we create for ourselves. And in many ways, that's how I had been living, and things were going remarkably well for me. I was free to create the life I wanted. At 27, I'd fulfilled those childhood dreams, and yet here I was, yearning for God, yearning for transcendence and ultimate meaning, sitting alone in a church on a Sunday morning. What had once seemed a courageous and exciting responsibility to just go and invent myself and invent my own meaning in life was now appearing desperately shallow. Hearing about this God who poured out his blood for the forgiveness of sins, who promises to remake the entire creation and redeem its brokenness, and witnessing these people taking part in this ancient liturgy seemed to lift the veil on my life. There would always be another success, another fellowship to win, another book to write. I knew it well. So the quest to create my own meaning had merely plunged me into a relentless cycle of achievement. It was a life of little glories and unending pursuits. Atheism had once seemed brave and empowering, and now it just seemed thin and frivolous. As I sat in this beautiful church, it seemed that there was a purpose to human history and to time after all. There was an ultimate story about God who created humanity and who, after we rejected him, pursued us by inhabiting time, becoming human in Jesus Christ and suffering and dying for us. And through his death and resurrection, he began setting right the entire creation. Now, that story was immensely challenging to me, but it was also compelling because it seemed to make sense of human history with all our suffering and our striving. And it also seemed to make sense of my own condition. But there was something else. During the liturgy of the Lord's Supper, I encountered God as sacred. My universe was flat, as it were, without anything transcendent, because I believe there was nothing beyond this life. But here in church, I encountered the reality that Christianity is not just intellectual. It's not just a set of truths that can be expressed as propositions that you either believe or don't believe. Now, it is that, but here in church, it was clear that Christianity was far more than that. It's not just a set of ideas. Because I was being invited into a people with a history. I was being invited into an entire way of life, a new family, a new community, 
a people who God was forming in history. And when I left church that morning, I was beginning to desire God. So I began to attend church and I continued to read theology and then read the Bible. And I spent a lot of time in reflection. I came to the conclusion that atheism couldn't provide adequate answers to the big questions. And it couldn't make sense of what I saw as a historian, but also experienced of the human predicament of living in a world that doesn't satisfy our deepest longings. The more I learned about God's love for us in Jesus, the more I found myself overwhelmed. I realized that God had always known me, always loved me, and that he wanted me to stop running after everything else in life except him. See, I'd lived a life rejecting God, arrogantly ridiculing and poking fun of God and of other Christians. And now that idea of sin was beginning to make sense. I'd rejected God and I'd never wanted him. I was far from a perfect person in so many ways. And yet here was God showing me grace, offering me a relationship with him, which I'd done absolutely nothing to deserve. And he gave me this grace at the horrific cost of taking the punishment that my sin deserved onto himself in Jesus. Now, while there's so much more to this story, I decided that the Bible's explanation of who God is and who we are and what life is all about was true. And I wanted to follow the God who made me and loves me and died for me. So one night I knelt in my closet, as we called it, in my apartment, and I prayed and I admitted to God that I'd always rejected him, that I'd lived a life turning away from him. And I asked that Jesus's death would count for me. I asked Jesus to become my saviour. And this is not because I thought that by doing this, God would enable me to avoid suffering or disappointment, or that I would achieve all my dreams, but because God, through Christ himself, is life, and life with him is life in abundance. One of my favourite verses from John's Gospel, this is chapter 10, verse 10, is that Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. So becoming a Christian is not something one does in order to attain a better or an easier life. God doesn't promise us health or wealth or to minimise our suffering. And salvation isn't about us earning our way to some place in the clouds through good works. On the contrary, there's nothing we can do to reconcile ourselves to God. And as a historian, this made profound sense to me. I was all too aware of the cycles of poverty and violence and injustice in human history to think that some utopian design of our own, scientific or otherwise, might save us. Christianity, to my surprise, was also radical and beautiful. The love of God was unlike anything which I expected or of which I could make sense. In becoming fully human in Jesus, God behaved decidedly unlike a God. Why deign to walk through death's dark valley or hold the weeping limbs of lepers if you are God? Why submit to the humiliation of death on a cross and abandonment in order to save those who hate you? God suffered punishment in our place because of a radical sacrificial 
love, which I learned is utterly opposed to the individualism and the consumerism, exploitation, the objectification of our culture. And just as radical, I realised, was the new creation which Christ began to initiate. Because this turned on its head that sentimental caricature of heaven in the clouds that I'd once held as an atheist. I learned that Jesus' resurrection initiated the kingdom of God, which will, as he says in Luke's gospel, bring good news to the poor, release the captives, restore sight to the blind and free the oppressed. To live as a Christian is a call to be part of this new creation. And as I became more a member of the church, I was able to see an active Christianity in people who lived their lives so differently. They were certainly not perfect people by any means. They were sinners, but they were forgiven sinners, and they acted with this kind of freedom and hope that came from outside of this world, that enabled them to do things that were very, very costly, costly materially, but also in terms of doing things like loving their enemies, feeding the homeless every week, running community centres, housing in Tallahassee the migrant farm labourers. These were the things that I always thought were part of the good life when I was an atheist, but actually they were never sustained by atheism, never underpinned by that. They're part of Christ's vision for how we ought to live. So I'm not passively awaiting a place in the clouds now, I'm a forgiven person, a person who is redeemed by Christ. And that invitation to come to God through Christ Jesus, to be forgiven by him, and therefore to have life and life to the full, is open to all people. It was an invitation that was open to me, and it's an invitation that is open to you. Okay, we're going to just stop now, have a breather. There's a number on the screen. If you've got any questions you'd like to ask Sarah now, just text them into that number 0488 819 So you have my permission to go on your phone now. That's quite okay. Um, I'm going to start off with a question. Um, Sarah, you've come on this journey from kind of, if I can describe it, secular atheism to faith. For someone who might be here today who might be, would consider themselves somewhere on that journey, um, maybe agnostic, maybe atheist, and they've heard you speak and they've gone, hmm, maybe I need to have a think about this. What, yeah. what would you say would be helpful for them as someone yeah, who's yeah. been on this journey? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think a few things. The first is... Open the Bible. I mean, it depends where the person is on, on the journey, yep. but if you've started reading the Bible or if you haven't yet, read the Bible. Read one of the Gospels in the New Testament and, and, and pray um, and see if you, if you can do that. There are no particular words that you need to use, but read the Bible and, and try to pray, try to talk to God. That's the first thing. Had then, you prayed yeah. before you prayed that prayer in the closet? I don't know how earnestly I'd, I'd prayed. Until that point. Yeah. Yeah, that's yes, okay. Yeah. But, okay, so that's, that's just one thing. But 
The other thing, and in many ways I think this is just as important in those early stages, is um, come and be part of a Christian community. Like if you're part of, you know, if you're visiting today and this is a church that's near you, come to try to get to know other Christians and be part of that community because actually being part of the community and and knowing friends and being in relationship with friends, not really necessarily even your own age, but different generations, um, across all kinds of difference, being part of that community at church and coming along to church, you don't even have to fully believe, of course, but that kind of being grafted in a, into community, I think, is really helpful because it's one of the way, one of the contexts, I think, in which God often uses um, through through friendship. Fantastic. He uses His word through yeah, coming in, having relationships. And it's worth saying, if you are visiting today, you are very welcome to keep coming. Uh, we do love having visitors come and join us and become part of us. I'm going to look to the screen now, and we've got our first question. Were there any costs for you, either professional or personal, in abandoning your atheism, and how did your family react? It's a fairly personal yeah, question. Yeah, that is a really... But it's such a good question, too. Um, yes. And, of course, I'm really aware of the fact that when I talk about cost, like the cost that I have in my life is in no comparison to the kind of cost that people take in, that, that is part of becoming a Christian in parts of the world where Christians are actively persecuted for their faith. Um, and so I just want to obviously caveat with that. Um, yeah, I think there, there is a cost um, in the sense that you have to kind of abandon all the... the you don't live for the same kind of things that you lived for anymore. And so while that's a kind of cost in some ways, there's a kind of freedom from those kind of things that you pursued, idols, like false gods, basically. Um, there's a kind of freedom that comes with that too. So, yeah, there is a cost. Um, and I think too, look, to be honest, so as we talked about, I am a public Christian, um, in the humanities department um, at university. And this is a place in which it's not easy to be a Christian. Um, and I just... There may well be costs as I continue to kind of be a public Christian. But the thing is, and I think this is the biblical truth that's always important for me, but for anyone to keep in mind, there'll be, there'll be costs that, you know, it is costly, and yet Christ has bought... Has, has borne the ultimate cost. And whoever, you know, if you, if you lay down your life, as it were, and pick up your cross and follow me, then you will actually find life. And so whatever cost that is, or even will be in the future, Christ has borne the ultimate cost, and I find life in Christ himself. Oh, and do you want me to answer the second part about my parents? If you want to. If yeah, I mean, they are, um, look, I, I, I pray for them um, and they are very supportive, but they are not, they're not Christians. Not on the same yeah. journey? No. Okay. Next question. My friend's family are not intentional atheists, but passively indifferent agnostics. Oh, is yeah. an interesting description. Um, how do we go about reaching them with the truth of the gospel? Your thoughts? Oh, man. Um, look, I think just by being in relation in relationship with people and loving them 
and continually just trying to be open about your own faith and even open in the ways that even if you're not explicitly or in a, in a place in life where you're explicitly kind of able to share the gospel, because I can speak for some personal experience there as well, some people say to you, no, don't, don't say this. I think one thing that I've found helpful um, is to live in such a way that, you know, when you do suffer or go through something enormously difficult, for example, or whatever it is, then you, just by talking about the way that you're experiencing that and giving it to God or trusting God through this suffering or whatever, even if it's just a kind of way in which they constantly know you as somebody who is living in such a way that their, their faith is, you know, what they live for, that's a kind of witness to them. And, yeah, I'm assuming here that they're sort of in a category of people that um, that sort of just aren't even interested or open to having the, you know, doing something quite um, direct, like actually reading the Bible with them. So I think just that kind of witness, first okay. of all, and then doing something, I mean, it depends where they are on that spectrum, but then perhaps even inviting them to, I mean, I've heard earlier that you're running an Alpha course here. We're going to hear about it very shortly. Invite, like, if that's a possibility in your particular circumstance or relationship, invite them to Alpha course and go along with them. Okay, we've got one last question. Here we go. Did your oh. search for transcendence have you looking more broadly than the Christian faith, i.e. Eastern religion or New Age? Yeah. Um, no, not in any kind of deep way. I think partly because the more I read of Christian theology and the more I read of the Bible, it, was, it is actually far more compelling. Um, and the other thing is... My, the assistant professorship I held at Florida State University is in a religion department, so I was actually surrounded by colleagues who taught um, the history of, and that, like taught the secular study of Buddhism, um, Islam, and so forth. And so I knew about those religions to some extent anyway, and had colleagues who taught in those areas. And so I think I was actually able to kind of perceive that actually the, the depth and the intellectual rigor and the truth that is in the Bible is actually, is actually the truth. I didn't have to go too far into those things, yeah. Fantastic. I'm going to leave it there. Sarah will be around at morning tea if you'd like to come and have a quick chat with her. But can I get you to thank Dr. Sarah Irving Stonebreaker this morning? And I'm going to